Boulder, Colorado has long been a mecca for triathlon and a race destination for many in our sport. A few days ago, Boulder joined the ever-growing list of cities to experience mass murder at the hands of a man armed with a legally obtained weapon better suited for a battlefield than an urban supermarket. This is a triathlon podcast, and I'm not going to speak to you today on issues related to politics or common-sense gun control. However, I felt compelled to say something, because the 10 lives that were lost— even though none of them may have been a triathlete, have now been added to the thousands who came before them in similar circumstances, and they should amount to more than just thoughts and prayers. On behalf of all of us at the TriDoc Podcast, we extend our deepest sympathies to everyone affected and our heartfelt wishes that somehow this will be the tipping point where we finally say, enough is enough. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Well, we're deep into the third fall spring here in Colorado. For those of you unfamiliar with our Rocky Mountain climate, we get around 300 days a year of sunshine, but those other 65 days can make things pretty interesting. Between late January and mid-May, we can expect daily variations in temperature anywhere from the mid-70s on one day to below freezing with blizzard-like conditions the next. When you then add to this the local snow removal practices, which are essentially solar and thermal in nature, it makes this period of time somewhat agonizing as a triathlete. Over the past two weeks, we had one day when we received 27 inches of snow, followed by several days of weather in the 60s and 70s. This melted most of the snow and got many of us ready to bust out our bikes for some road riding, when we were then hit with another blizzard and six more inches of the white fluffy stuff. Well, that too is finally beginning to melt away, making it look as though we just might be able to consider riding again, but fear not, more snow should be in the forecast sometime after Easter to set us back once again. All of this brings to mind a common ailment that afflicts triathletes, and that is a tendency to fret over things that is really beyond their control. I tell my athletes all of the time that the key to having a successful race is one part putting in the required work and training, one part anticipating issues and being ready to deal with them, for example, flat tires on the bike or having your goggles knocked off in the swim, and one healthy big part of shutting out the noise and just focusing on the things that you can control. Look, I could have spent a lot of time being upset about the weather in Denver over the past couple of weeks. Alternatively, I can just woman up and adapt to the day-to-day changes and get my training done however I need to. And this kind of adaptability and stress-free approach to my training translates pretty well to my races also. Back in 2019, before the pandemic, I was getting ready for Ironman Louisville. And all I heard about whenever I spoke to people or when I looked at social media was this incredible amount of stress related to whether or not the swim was going to be cancelled. 
All I could think about at the time was, who cares? Show up for the race and deal with whatever is thrown at you. Whether or not the swim is canceled is completely out of your control, so why waste a single second worrying about it? There is, after all, so much more to spend valuable mental energy on that can be productive, especially within the last couple of weeks before a big race. Similarly, I'm watching athletes get ready for the Ironman this year in Port Macquarie in Australia, and the only thing that people are talking about is the fact that the 2020 merchandise and medals are going to be used in this year's race. Really? That's what's on your mind two weeks before an Ironman? Look, to an extent I get it. It's a big deal, and the t-shirt and the medal mean something. But why waste any time at all stressing or being angry over something like that? The value of that t-shirt, the value of the medal, is not actually the value of whatever is in it. It's the value that you imbue upon it. It has zero upside and only downside for your race prep and performance for you to carry on and be stressed about it. Carrying stress and anxiety with you over things that you can't control never goes well. As someone much smarter and more famous than me once said, don't sweat the small stuff. And it's all small stuff. And personally, I couldn't agree more. On the show today, I'm going to discuss a very common illness that afflicts many in our sport. Asthma is a chronic respiratory condition that, for the most part, can be well-controlled and need not be a significant impediment for sufferers when it comes to training and racing. Still, there are many myths that persist related to asthma and exercise, as well as concerns related to exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, a different issue altogether that warrants some discussion. So I take a look at all of that, and that's coming up in just a bit. Later on, I'm joined by Australian professional triathlete Tim Reed. Timbo, as he is affectionately known, is a real character in the sport and has had a successful career over 12 seasons. We recently spoke after the Australian National Long Course Championships, where he had yet another podium finish, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy our conversation. Before that, though, I want to take a moment to remind you all once again of the benefits of becoming a Patreon supporter of this show. The TriDoc podcast may indeed be a labor of love on my end, but there are still costs involved in bringing it to you. If you enjoy the program and want to help keep bringing it to you and others for the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can sign on to be a subscriber and help defray some of those costs. In addition, you'll receive access to great bonus content that can be found on my Patreon site. And that site is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The URL again, patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks in advance for considering. Shortness of breath is a common symptom experienced by pretty much all endurance athletes at some point during their training. For most, it's just a result of pushing themselves too hard and past the threshold where they begin to incur an oxygen debt at the level of their tissues. This causes a cascade of biochemical processes that result in increased respiratory rate and breath volume and a sensation of, and a sensation of being, well, short of breath. For asthmatics, though, the term shortness of breath takes on an entirely different meaning. Asthmatics may become short of breath seemingly for no reason at all, and in the most severe cases can become gravely ill or even die without immediate treatment. Fortunately, modern medicine has come a long way since the days when a diagnosis of asthma meant severe restriction on activities, and the vast majority of those diagnosed with the disease live completely normal lives. 
Still, if you have asthma or if you train with someone who does, you may wonder what impact this illness has on the ability to train or perform and whether or not training itself has the potential to make the illness worse. Then there is the whole question of exercise-induced asthma, an entity all to itself. Well, let's spend this segment looking at what asthma is, how it can affect training and racing for those who have it, and how exercise itself might be a factor in causing asthma flares. I'll start with a brief overview of asthma as a disease itself. Asthma, which is more generically known as reactive airway disease, is a chronic respiratory disease characterized by inflammation and increased responsiveness of the muscles lining the small airways. When those muscles constrict, it results in airflow obstruction and gas trapping in the lungs. Symptoms of asthma include cough, wheezing, and increased sputum production. Asthma is one of the most common respiratory diseases in the world and affects children to a much greater degree than it does adults. Asthma is distinct from another common disease that shares some clinical similarities with it, and that is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. COPD is seen almost exclusively in older adults and arises because of the damage that occurs to the lungs from exposure to cigarette smoke over years of use. While COPD also manifests as cough, shortness of breath, and overinflation of the lungs because of gas trapping, the pathophysiology of the disease is very different than for asthma, and so are the treatments. Now, asthma has a strong hereditary and environmental contribution, and is mediated mostly by allergic and autoimmune mechanisms, which are very different than those factors at play in the development of COPD. Although asthma is generally much more common and severe in children, whose airways are much smaller and thus more susceptible to changes in size that are caused by bronchospasm, which is the main issue at play in an asthma attack, asthma is still seen in adults as well. Sometimes, these are cases that have persisted since childhood, while in others the disease may only appear later in life. Regardless of when it starts, asthma is managed the same way, and when well-controlled, should not be a significant impediment to any activities, including high-intensity training and racing. The management of asthma can be thought of as falling into two broad categories, symptom control and rescue medications. To control symptoms, asthmatics have a wide variety of medications at their disposal, from oral medications that target the inflammatory cascade at the heart of the disease, to inhaled steroids that reduce the inflammation in the lungs and the sensitivity of the bronchial musculature to respond to irritants. Outside of medications, asthmatics can also take preventative steps to mitigate the disease by avoiding things that cause flares, like reducing exposure to dust or animal dander. When an asthmatic does develop symptoms, though, they have to use inhaled bronchodilators that are rescue medications, and these relax the musculature causing the airway narrowing, and if symptoms are particularly bad, oral steroids can be added that can be used for a brief course to reduce the inflammation that's associated with the flare. Doctors who manage asthma will use the preventative medications in a way to ensure that rescue medications are needed as rarely as possible. All but the most severe of cases, and those are usually seen in children, will have success with some combination of oral and inhaled medications to control symptoms with the use of rescue medications on an as-needed basis. Well, now that we have a basic understanding of asthma, let's take a look at some of the myths that have persisted about the disease and its relation to exercise. And we'll begin first with the myth that asthmatics need to, or should, avoid exercise. 
Before there were medications available to control asthma well, exercise was thought of as a potentially dangerous thing for asthmatics to participate in. Back in the 1970s, and even as late as the 1980s, there were in fact not an insignificant number of hospitalizations and even deaths attributable to severe asthma exacerbations that were associated with high intensity or prolonged exertion. And this was simply due to the fact that at that time, there weren't a great number of medications that were particularly effective at controlling the symptoms of asthma. Fortunately, since that time, there have been significant advances in the treatment of the disease, and now it's well understood that not only does exercise not pose a risk to asthmatics, but in fact, it can significantly improve the severity of the disease and the overall quality of life of those who suffer from it. Several large studies have been shown that asthmatics who participate in regular aerobic exercise have improved overall fitness, better lung mechanics, and as a result, improved overall quality of life when compared to asthmatics who do not exercise. Exercise, in fact, is now recommended as one of the mainstays of treatment in managing the long-term effect of asthma as a result of the findings of these studies. A second myth is that asthmatics have lower performance ceilings than non-asthmatics in endurance sports. While there is some truth to the notion for poorly controlled asthmatics that there is a lower performance ceiling, the vast majority of people who have asthma can be managed well, especially by the time they reach adulthood. As I mentioned earlier, asthma is a disease of the smaller airways of the lungs, and this is why it is so much worse in children than it is in adults. In smaller lungs, those really small airways are teeny tiny, and any degree of obstruction has a really significant impact. As a child grows into puberty and then to adulthood, their lungs grow with them, and so the impact on the small airways becomes less significant, and many people even outgrow the disease altogether. For others, the disease persists, but to much less a degree than when they were children, and in almost all cases can be managed with medications to limit the frequency and the severity of flare-ups. Consequently, pulmonary function and overall aerobic performance for many asthmatics can be just as good as their non-asthmatic peers. A third myth is that training regimens for asthmatics need to be different than for non-asthmatic athletes. And for the most part, an athlete with asthma can be prescribed the exact same training program as a non-asthmatic athlete. No real accommodation needs to be made for training volume or intensity, nor for the specific types of workouts just because an athlete is asthmatic. Now, it's true that some individualized consideration should be given to the athlete who has poorly controlled asthma, or for the athlete who has extra exercise-induced bronchospasm, which we're going to talk about in a second. But aside from that, asthmatic athletes who have well-controlled disease really don't need to have any distinct changes or differences in their program from a non-asthmatic athlete. So I mentioned exercise-induced bronchospasm a couple of times now, and I've referred to it either as EIB, exercise-induced bronchospasm, or as exercise-induced asthma. So let's focus on that for a second. What, what is this entity? Well, EIB was formally referred to exclusively as exercise-induced asthma, but is now really thought of as exercise-induced bronchospasm. It is really a distinct entity and not truly the same thing as asthma because it's not marked by the same chronic inflammatory processes as we see in the chronic disease of asthma. Rather, it's a condition wherein an individual with or without underlying asthma develops the signs and symptoms of an asthma attack soon after the initiation of exercise. 
Now, EIB is seen more frequently in people who have underlying asthma, but that diagnosis is not a prerequisite for it. Many non-asthmatics can develop this problem, and while the symptoms tend not to be as severe as a full-fledged asthma attack, they can impair performance, require medical intervention, and for many, if it's bad enough, can actually undo an entire race because of its severity. The pathophysiology of EIB is not completely understood, but researchers believe that it's multifactorial. During exercise, there's a shift of breathing from principally through the nose to through the mouth, and this can have the impact of allowing drier air into the lungs. This dehydrates the mucosa of the small airways and results in the production of several inflammatory mediators that can cause bronchoconstriction. Another consequence of mouth breathing is a loss of filtering that usually happens in the nose, so allergens and irritative dust particles can gain entry to the small airways and stimulate the additional responses, all of which results in exercise-induced bronchospasm. Well, fortunately, EIB responds well to the same rescue medications as does asthma, so rescue inhalers will work for athletes who suffer from this. However, the time to relief is somewhat unpredictable, so it's prudent for those who get EIB to work to prevent it rather, to try, rather than try to treat it once it actually is established. Asthmatics with EIB can use all of the usual medications to control their asthma and gain the benefit of reducing the likelihood and severity of EIB, while non-asthmatics can use rescue medications like albuterol in advance of exercise with some degree of success in preventing EIB, but not total. Both asthmatics and non-asthmatics are going to benefit from ensuring a proper warm-up, using measures to mitigate the inhalation of dust or other types of irritants, and this can be done, for example, by using a face mask or a buff when training in dusty environments, Uh, swimming in an outdoor pool or well-ventilated indoor pools to avoid significant chlorine exposure can also be helpful, and refraining from training in very cold or dry environments whenever possible. All of these things can reduce the likelihood of developing exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. Now, you may be wondering about the need for a therapeutic use exemption, or TUE, if you are an asthmatic or a sufferer from exercise-induced bronchospasm and are taking any of the medications that are needed to control your symptoms or provide rescue should a flare develop. Well, at the time that I'm recording this, in March of 2021, none of the medications, be they oral or inhaled, that are used for the management or rescue of asthma are banned by any of the anti-doping agencies so long as they are used in the usual dosing regimens. Now, the only exception for this is the oral steroid prednisone that is allowed outside of competition, but is banned in competition, and thus would require a TUE. As always, though, if you want to be 100% certain, you should definitely consult the USADA or WADA or whichever is your national uh, governing body for drug uh, uh, testing and make sure that uh, there's uh, any up-to-date additional information that's needed there because these things can, of course, change. Now, in conclusion... Asthma can be a lifelong recurring issue for many athletes, but it doesn't have to be taken as a reason to restrict from pursuing triathlon or any other endurance activity that they may wish to partake in. And so asthmatics can go ahead as long as they're well-controlled and keep on training and expect to have the same kinds of results as anybody else who trains just as hard. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com and I will be sure to take a look 
and consider answering it right here. Tim Reed is a longtime professional triathlete with an impressive palmares over the duration of his time racing triathlon. In the 12 years since his professional debut, he has amassed wins at all the distances that are raced, including Ironman, and has raced at Kona three times. But where he has really shone is at the 70.3 distance, with 20 race wins, including the 2016 World Championships. He hasn't really slowed down, though. We're recording this just a few days after Tim placed second at the Australian Long Course National Championships, and that came on the heels of his third-place finish at the not-particularly-invitingly-named Hell of the West Triathlon in Western Australia. Tim has also started coaching when he isn't busy being a dad to his three kids, and he has an enormously entertaining Instagram feed that I highly recommend. But for right now, I'm just really happy to welcome him to the podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for being here, Tim. Thank you, Jeff. Pleasure to talk to you. Well, you know, we met uh, back in 2017. I know, I know, this is probably something you still think about to this day. We met back in 2017 in uh, um, Tennessee, uh, Chattanooga, at the 70.3 World Championships at a promotional event that you were doing. And uh, while um, that probably didn't make a big uh, impact in your life. It definitely did in mine, and I enjoyed that, that interaction highly. Um, but it, it's it's a reminder to me that you've really been around the sport for quite a long time and had success for really that entire time. And not that I can remember any significant injuries that have taken you out of the support. So Sorry, that's taking you out of the sport. So I'm curious, what's been your, you know, secret sauce that, to keep you, you know, going and and having success and not burning out? Good question. I think uh, the first, I'd like to say I haven't had serious injuries, but I have. The first year I raced as a pro, uh, I learned the hard way that I came from fitting in training around full time work, and suddenly I had all this time to train, and I figured I need to fill every hour I have with training. And within three months, I had a sacral stress fracture, you know, chronic plantar fasciitis and all the, you know, a lot of the classic injuries that you get from overuse. And uh, so the first six months of my pro career was mostly on the sidelines and I actually had to go back to part-time work pretty quickly. Hmm. And I think having that happen really early on, um, you know, I learned from it pretty quickly and what my... Honestly, the training didn't drastically change from what I did as an age group athlete then. I just learned to recover a lot more. And uh, from that point, you know, you're right. I haven't had any major injuries. I think a lot of that comes down to luck. I, I was hit by a car once, but I didn't didn't break any bones or nothing too bad happened. And uh, and that's always, you know, that can be something out of everyone's control when that happens. But And then um, I've always you know, focused a lot on strength work and functional strength work. Uh, and I shouldn't say always, whenever I stop doing it, I notice niggles and injuries start to come back. So I quickly get back into the gym and, and make that a pretty important part of my tra- training program. That's really interesting that you say that because I've had many guests on this program who talk really strength, well, strength, it's funny, strongly about doing strength work. Uh, and I am a proponent as well. And I, you know, as a coach myself, I, I I'm always pushing that on my athletes, and yet triathletes are notorious for cutting that as the first thing. When they become time crunch, the first thing to go is their strength work, and uh, I've been guilty of that myself in the past, and yet you hear it from pros all the time that you know what they view as a key to maintaining an injury-free long career is 
doing that strength work. And it's it's interesting to hear you say it again. Uh, just one more example. Yeah, it's it's funny because it can be the one the sessions in the week that actually detract a little bit in the short term from your performance on the bike. Oh, not so much on the bike, but definitely running. And so it's easy to want to skip it because you know uh, this is going to make those one kilometer reps a bit sluggish or. But then the more consistent you are, obviously, the less impact it has on that training But um, in the short term. And, of course, the consistency you get by staying injury-free far outweighs perhaps not being able to get that extra 5, 10 seconds per kilometre or, you know, 20 seconds per mile or whatever it is that, that you're trying to hit. So, yeah, it's it's I can understand and empathise with people who cut it. It's a hard one to think to include when we're all fixated on um, – bike swim and run mileage but it, it it obviously you know when every pro's preaching how important it is i think we're all onto something yeah yeah definitely uh now you've really had tremendous success at the 70.3 distance uh, i mean it's interesting i was looking over your results and uh, i was amazed at how many races you've done local to me here in denver uh, even things like the crescent moon sprint triathlon i mean that, I, that's a really <laughs> local race so that's pretty amazing um but the 70.3 is clearly your sweet spot. Now, is it your sweet spot because you just love that distance or is it? Uh, is there something in your makeup that you think makes you well-suited for it? I'm just curious, why is it that you have really raced principally at that distance and done so well? Yeah, I think I was really fortunate uh, early on in my pro years in, in the US to have raced quite a bit of non-drafting Olympic distance. And even um, sprint triathlon, non-drafting, I feel like they would, if they had continued, I think they would have been probably grouped uh, quite successfully with 70.3 events because I just like running. I'm not a, you know, ultra speedy runner, but I don't seem to get as affected by the bike leg as other athletes do. Um, so I run strong without being super fast. And and obviously those races sort of faded out a little bit, but um I think also not being the strongest swimmer, it's just a nice balance. You've got enough time on the bike and run to really get back in the race. Whereas, you know, with the shorter distance and especially if if I was to race non-drafting, the swim has just gotten so quick now that without really putting the emphasis on it that I would have needed to from 18, you know, through to 20, early 20s, I think it's very hard to get into that sort of that level of swimming. Uh, So, I think 70.3s is just a really good mix between strength uh, and, you know, your, your aerobic capacity. And my, you know, my VO2 max and all my uh, testing has always been excellent. But, you know, I'm also a small guy. I don't have the longest legs. So there's some bio- biomechanical limitations there to max it, you know, even when I'm at close to threshold or above. Uh, so, you know, to, to run 315 per kilometre, I, I don't want to translate to miles, sorry. That's okay. Um, <laughs> you know, is quite, is, is fine for me, but then to take it to 255 or, you know, that pace that ITU guys run is, is, I find very difficult from a biomechanical perspective, you know, the short little legs just don't, don't quite reach out long enough. But I mean, that's, you know, perhaps that's trainable. I'm not sure, but it just seems to be my sweet spot in terms of, uh, uh, what I enjoy, you know, even in training, I love that, that training intensity, but also, I think uh, whenever I go quicker than 70.3 efforts, it, it does seem to cause a few more injuries and things like that. So it's just, yeah, I've been, 
it's just seemed to match up with my uh, personality, my biomechanics, and, and my engine, I guess. Now, help me understand, uh, you know, me as an age grouper, and, and I've had success at Ironman and 70.3 distance. I mean, but when I race, I, you know, I, I've always said I enjoy 70.3 for two reasons. The first is that I can actually race at a higher intensity. And the second is that I recover quicker because the race isn't quite as long. Uh, so when I race uh, a 70.3, like on the bike, for example, by, you know, intensity factor somewhere around 80, uh, yeah, 80%. And then when I race Ironman, it's, it drops down to about 70%. And I'm curious for a pro, is, is there that similar uh, kind of, I, I'm sure for you guys is probably 90 for 70.3, but is it 90, 80, or is, is there a significant drop off from 70.3 to Ironman in terms of the intensity? There certainly has been for me, I think, um, for the better, go- for some of the top, you know, performers in Ironman, like Sebi Kinley, you know, and those guys, I imagine that they are, they don't drop off as much. Um, I think, yeah, I, I, I I think the you're right though the threshold you, you're much closer to threshold in a seventy point three. Um, the better the fitter you are as the season progresses, I notice that you know you you're almost at that threshold point. Just the duration becomes longer and longer that you can sustain it, and and also there's a bit of a tactical aspect to it. You know, certain races you might be lower on the bike, but that means you'll be much much higher on the run and vice versa. So. It, it does vary, but I, I think the the drop off is still pretty significant from seventy point three to Ironman. And is the recovery time uh, also an in, a factor for you? Like, I mean, do do pros recover more quickly uh, from a seventy point? I mean, I, you must just. But I mean, is is there an extended recovery time from an Ironman for you guys? Oh, for sure. I think um, as a pro, I've been probably quite poor at it, not taking the necessary time after an Ironman. I think you. You start to think that you well, you feel better physically, but there's just this sort of neural fatigue that that seems to last for a long time, and uh, yeah, I, I it's I think pros don't necessarily recover that much faster than the age group population. Yeah, I think we we just force ourselves back into it, perhaps because we're not working, you know, as much in the days following. Maybe that helps with a more rapid recovery if there is one. But uh, yeah, it's it's something that. Of course, when you when you're making your money from racing, there's also a, a fairly there's the factor that you don't have that much time to take off from racing to recover. You've sort of got to get back in the game, um, unless you you know unless you really got the sponsorships to to take plenty of time off in between. Yeah, so more you know less recovery time means more ability to race means more potential winnings means a higher salary. So that obviously makes sense. Um, what are your thoughts on I, – I don't know how much the whole the PTO thing has infiltrated into Australia, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the professional triathlon organization and what's going on with sort of the animosity with, uh, you know, World Triathlon Corporation. Yeah, uh, so obviously the PTO has been a positive influence for the pros in Australia as much as anywhere, and we've had some supported races uh, down here that have really kept pro racing somewhat alive, I guess. Um, I think the animosity between, you know, personally, I, I feel like it's a little bit misplaced. I would rather, you know, just some, um, just some fresh competition between different companies, you know, rather than, uh, this tit for tat sort of, sort of animosity, but that's, that's me personally. I, I totally understand, 
um, you know, that things can get frustrated when there's personalities involved. And, and, and I understand too that, you know, pros, pros need to push for their own rights as well with, with uh, WTC. And WTC, do, you know, we can't forget that without them, pros would not really have a job. And, you know, they've, they've grown amazingly in my time as an athlete and, and given me a, you know, career that, you know, I really just did as a one-year sabbatical from work. And, you know, here I am 11 years in, um, still going. So, you know, I just think it's important that pros are grateful to Ironman as, as well. But, of course, that doesn't mean that things can't be made better. And, you know, I, I think the PTA is starting. Hopefully we just do it the right way and put pressure on things that could be changed for a more positive race experience for the pro field and hopefully promote pros better and, and make the uh, make the standard of pro racing greater that, that attracts more people to watch it and, and that, of course, will in turn make professionals' lives better with greater sponsorship, better uh, opportunity for us to advertise our sponsors. Yeah, that's remarkably uh, reasonable, Tim. Uh, <laughs> it's a, a real nice sense of uh, fairness in what you just said there because I, from the outside looking in and not knowing all the players and not really knowing all the politics behind it, it's like I kind of find myself shrugging my shoulders going, you guys really should be on the same team because you know clearly the pros benefit from Ironman. Ironman will, I think, benefit in the long run from a strong PTO and uh, I, I would really really like to see the two organizations work together to you know improve the overall strength of triathlon as a as a spectator sport and as a as something that people want to watch like you said it can only it can only be good for everyone involved uh, i want to turn back to your own career and uh the, you know we talked briefly about injuries uh but really about illness for you because uh, i learned through watching your interview with a friend of the podcast andrew uh, patterson who uh, writes the ironman hacks blog that uh, you're a carrier of the cystic fibrosis gene and that is something you learned only sometime during your pro career and was responsible for the reason that you were losing so much salt. Could you tell, tell me a little bit about that story and how you've uh, adapted to deal with it? Yeah, it's interesting. I, it's been a bit of a fascinating roller coaster with my sweat tests and um, bizarrely the first time I did the test was you know with six or seven other people I knew and you know, my sodium losses were through the roof and, uh, and then I've had other tests and it's, there's quite a lot of variability between the tests and we can't work out, you know, the person I do it with has done over 2000 tests of, with athletes and he's never seen anything like, and we can't work out whether somehow maybe the CF genes be activated and then switched off or we don't know what's happening, but it's hard to predict. And at the moment, my salt losses seem to be much lower than they were several years ago. So, uh, it, yeah, it's been one of those things where I, it's, it's been <laughs> just something really difficult to get on top of. You know, there's been, uh, it's just been a, a battle in hot races. And then when I get it right, then things seem to change a little bit. And uh, it's, it's sort of a confusing conundrum at the moment. And I, I'm not really completely on top. I've learned to just do tests. Uh, pretty soon now, close to races, and then adapt my uh, race strategy. Test. So that's really interesting. So you will tailor your salt intake in a given race based on your most recent sweat test then? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, there's going to be a little bit of variance anyway with just how heat adapted you are. 
Um, but that gives me a good indication of what to go with. And, you know, the, the downside of going too high, obviously, with the electrolytes is it competes for osmolality with the calories. So, you know, if, I'm just trying to find that right balance and uh, certainly feel like I've found it the last couple of races. And I'll, But I'll keep an eye on it and keep testing to try and work out what's best uh, every few months. That's really interesting. And I just, for my listeners who don't follow exactly what we've been saying, I just want to summarize briefly. Uh, You may remember back well long ago, early episode, I had Lisa Bentley, former pro triathlete on the program, and she actually has a mild form of cystic fibrosis. And that caused her uh, quite a bit of difficulty throughout her career dealing with issues within her lungs. Cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease that you inherit from both your parents. Both your parents have to be carriers. And if you get a gene from both of your parents, then you can actually express the disease. The disease itself comes about because of a problem with a specific um, transporter within cells that are found uh, within the lungs and then also within the gut and within the sweat glands. And these transporters are responsible for the reabsorption of chloride. So when these when you have cystic fibrosis, you cannot reabsorb chloride the way you're supposed to. And as a result of that, within the lungs and then within the sweat, you're constantly losing all of this fluid and you end up causing you end up having a lot of basically liquid and junk that ends up uh, in your lungs uh, and that causes problems for you know people who have severe cystic fibrosis. Uh, but the other problem that happens is that you have a very high concentration of sodium and chloride within or salt within your sweat. And for the longest time, before the gene was identified, the way that cystic fibrosis was actually diagnosed was through a sweat test. They would test a child's sweat and if the sweat was very, very high in salt, uh, then that would would be considered to be a presumptive positive for the presence of the cystic fibrosis, uh, either the gene or of the disease. Um, so Tim, it turns out, is a carrier of the gene. He does not have both genes, so he does not have the full-blown disease. And there have been studies that have shown that some people who carry one of the genes have some uh, degree of um, dysfunction of this carrier uh, of the, or sorry, of some de- uh, degree of dysfunction of this transporter within the sweat glands. And as a result of that, they can't absorb chloride. They lose a lot of sodium chloride in their sweat. And as Tim has discovered throughout his career, uh, at times that's been a big problem for him. He loses a lot more salt than he would otherwise if he didn't have that gene and has to replace it in his fluid. And as I've talked about also on this podcast, uh, you can only take so much salt in your uh, nutrition before you start getting into problems, as Tim just mentioned, with osmolarity, and that's a whole other situation. So that, in a nutshell, is what Tim's been dealing with, and successfully, obviously, because he's had quite a bit of success in managing it and uh, having wins. Uh, The other thing I know you've dealt with, and this is yet another genetic issue, is uh, asthma. Uh, How have you managed uh, to keep that under control? And and, because asthma, of course, uh, can be a a very significant uh, impairment to uh, respiratory function, which obviously is a big deal when you're doing endurance uh, sport. Yeah, I would say not very well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, you know, I I think I was sort of ignored. I've never liked the preventer medication. Uh, I find it gives me cramps through the night. Uh, I feel like I get run down. Uh, and you know, even as a slight, as an already anxious person, I feel like it, it exaggerates that a little bit. And so, you know, I try and only really use it if I have flare ups. Um, 
and I've learned to just do my training typically when I can in, in very in more humid environments and warmer environments. Even if when I train in Boulder, I'll, I'll do a lot of my riding with a uh, cloth around my around my face, and I it just seems to I don't know whether it just humidifies the air enough that I don't get the same level of inflammation. Um, but yeah, it's been something. I mean, I, I remember as an age grouper, I, I literally took a whole year off because my asthma was just too. Every race I would sign up to, I just couldn't get on top of it, and uh, it was just sort of a real chronic issue. And it's sort of come and gone throughout the career. It's like, you know, a lot of people get their overuse injuries when they're training too much. And for me, the first sign that I'm pushing the limits too much is my asthma comes back. And so, you know, rather than jump onto the medication, I just try and back my training off more because I feel like longer term that helps me uh, helps me get, be more consistent than, you know, using the, you know, the long-acting steroid puffers and things like that. So... And for yeah. you, for you, it's not exercise induced, so you don't have issues like in the middle of a race, suddenly your asthma kicks in. Yeah, it definitely is exercise induced. Oh, well, uh, that's problematic. Well, as allergy induced. Yeah, and you know, I'll, I'll um, use Ventolin if I really have to. But again, there's, you know, I, it does seem to, um, it does seem to contribute to cramping issues a little bit, and it's sort of like if I don't need it, I'll really try not to use it. But I can, you know, if, if I need it, it'll, I'll have to take it. Now, using Ventolin during a race as a pro, do you need to have a, a 2E for that? No. Um, to be honest, I haven't really taken it in a race in a long time. So, But, no, you don't need a 2UE. Uh, okay. I think they've, you know, that was – I don't know if you did at one stage. I know you definitely did for the um, Preventer Puffer, which I had um, – as an age grouper, but, and then they changed it. You didn't need one for a preventive puffer either. Oh, great. That's good to know. Mm. Um, well, you know, I want to finish on uh, a, a different aspect, uh, Tim, and that is uh, the fact that you know, how old are your kids now? So nearly three, uh, five and eight. So for the last eight years of your career, you've been both a professional triathlete and a father. And, you know, for us as age groupers, that often is a source of tremendous conflict in families and relationships. Uh, I, I can testify in my own relationship uh, with my wife and my kids. It was a real stressor. I mean, you know, you want to maintain it's a hobby that becomes very much addictive and something that you very much enjoy. And then when you have kids in the mix and you suddenly need to step back and really dedicate more of your time to your children, I think too many of us as age groupers are unwilling to, to do that. And since you can't step away from work, then the thing that tends to be sacrificed is being a good parent and a good husband or, or spouse. Um, now, obviously, as a professional triathlete, you don't have the the full-time job in the mix because triathlon is your full-time job. But I'm just curious because we're seeing more and more uh, women and men in the sport are having kids and are still succeeding. And I'm curious how you've managed to to make it uh, work for you uh, to be able to be there for your kids, be there for your wife, and uh, still be so successful as you have been. Yeah, I think um, there's the assumption that I've done it really well. And, you know, to be totally honest, there's a lot of times when I haven't done it well. Um, so it's a constant process and, and getting things right and balancing it. And, and also, I'm, you know, I also love coaching other people. Like, so my wife, instead of, you know, most age groupers probably their wife really puts their foot down on how much training they can do. Whereas my wife puts her foot down on 
how much I can sort of coach other people. <laughs> um, you know, even, you know, you said, you said, mentioned that I've started coaching people. I've always coached people from the beginning, you know, before I even started triathlon, I was a, a, I coached in various sports and I've always loved that. And so it, it's a, it's a constant balance. And I think, um, honestly, if the, the one thing that will, will make me retire is not that I'm, I'm not tired of the training. I love the training as much as ever. I really enjoy racing. It's just that I want to not be, I, I don't want to be the grumpy guy who's always tired from training with my kids. And so, you know, I've, I've had to learn to, especially in the last few years, not prioritize every race. So I'll pick three or four races in the year. And that's the time when I'll go into sort of grumpy tired mode. And the other races, I just have to accept that I'm not going to be at my best in the events. And, and that's okay. I'll use it for sort of a build and part of the process and, and, and just accept that, you know, you can't win every race anymore. Um, but that's the price you have, you know, with, with kids and, and, uh, and the other thing like, and this is sort of terrible, but I, I have to try and do training camps for my biggest races of the year. I don't like, um, the, the conflict between parenting and training and to, I get away for normally, you know, 10 to 14 days, sometimes up to three weeks before something like a world championship, um, to really just do the best I can and, and make sure that I'm giving the sponsors the amount of attention to the sport that I should be uh, and to recovery. And then afterwards, it's about taking time off and paying it back to the family. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's as much as a balance for me as it is for everyone else. And at times I've gotten it pretty not too badly. And then there's other times when I've definitely had to rein it in and, and refocus um, you know, even even get the balance right where I'm going, I'm putting too much into parenting sometimes and the racing starts to really suffer too much. So it's just a constant adjustment process and working out how to, you know, what's right and and learning when you really have to uh, be selfish and, and how to switch it off when you don't need to be as selfish. Uh, tell us a little bit just to finish uh, about your coaching business because um, I'm going to have the uh, link to your website in the show notes, but uh, I'd like to hear just a little bit uh, what you're doing on that uh, side of things. Yeah, I think um, having been a pro so focused on myself <laughs> for a long time, I've always ha- had some athletes, especially in the first couple of years of racing as a pro, I had a, quite a few athletes uh, and then I wanted to bring that back just to give back, especially to some of the younger pros who I could see them making all of the same mistakes I did and try and save them a few years of learning the hard way. Um, so it's it's not, you know, to be honest, I'm not looking to actively promote my coaching at this point. I've sort of got plenty of as much athletes as, a, as I need and, and I've got, you know, a couple of coaches now working for me. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just – it's about – I guess the main theme of my coaching is I've made all the mistakes so <laughs> so the athletes can try and avoid them and save a lot of time. Uh, and it's just something I've, I've always really enjoyed. I've always loved exercise physiology. I love, you know, the equipment side of the sport and it's just it's just super interesting to me. And so to impart some of that knowledge is, is always enjoyable and, and to watch, you know, age group athletes and especially young pros as well, it's awesome to have horses in the race so I can watch and follow races and be really excited with their progress and how they're going. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's just something I've always done and I can't, I, I really hope that I'll always be as enthusiastic about it because, you know, it's obviously a, 
a pretty logical career path for me after racing. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a huge part of coaching is mentorship, and you've just summed that up really nicely. And uh, clearly, having an impact on uh, whichever athletes are fortunate enough to work with you. So kudos to you for that, uh, Tim Reed. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join me today. This has been uh, a really entertaining conversation, and I wish you all the continued success in uh, the rest of this year and uh, going forward. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, it was great to chat. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at www.tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a, re- a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast in order to get yourself even more bonus content. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.